Um, hi, um, I'm Tony Brooks, and uh, uh, you're listening to uh, me on Beyond the Grid. Hello all, Tom Clarkson here, welcoming you along to another episode of Beyond the Grid, presented by Bose QuietComfort 35.2 wireless headphones. Now back in April, in China, Formula One celebrated the 1,000th round of the World Championship. And for this week's episode, I'm talking to a man who raced in the very first decade. Allow me to set the scene. This was the 1950s, a time when Grand Prix cars had engines in the front and no seatbelts, yet they could still be raced at more than 250 kilometers an hour. Races were long, 200 kilometers longer than today, and the tracks were brutal. It was the deadliest era in the history of the sport and many great drivers lost their lives. And it was into this environment, alongside the likes of Sterling Moss and the great Juan Manuel Fangio, that this week's guest arrived in 1956 from, rather unbelievably, the considerably more sedate world of dentistry. He'd go on to compete in 38 World Championship races, winning six times, giving him a better strike rate than many drivers more well-known, including Jochen Rindt, John Surtees and Nino Farina. Yet he remained incredibly down-to-earth, shunning the limelight and retiring before he turned 30. Sterling Moss once remarked that in his perfect driver lineup, he'd take this week's guest as his number one and Jim Clark as his number two, and accolades don't get much higher than that. I'm talking, of course, about Tony Brooks. Tony's 87 now and one of the few survivors of 50s F1. He was kind enough to invite me to his beautiful apartment in Surrey for a look back on a remarkable career that saw him win the first ever World Constructors Championship with Van Wall and go ever so close to the driver's crown with Ferrari. It was a fascinating chat. I hope you enjoy it. Tony, welcome to Be On The Grid. Thank you for inviting me into your home. It is such a pleasure to meet you and to talk to you about such a, a memorable period in Formula One history because you raced in the first decade of the World Championship. And for our younger listeners, can you paint a picture of what it was like back then? What was racing like? Well, of course, um, in motor racing, um, the, the first uh, uh, competition you had was um, uh, the circuits on which we raced. Because uh, if you ever made a mistake in those days, you were in the, the lap of the gods because uh, whether you finished up against uh, a brick wall or, or turned over in a ditch or a telegraph tele- telephone booth was entirely dependent on, uh, on, on the circuit that you were on. Uh, so that was the first worry that you had in those days. And then afterwards you had, you know, um, 20 or so competitors to deal with. We were um, very much aware that the danger was so much greater in those days and uh, not this business of a, a yellow line to, sort of to mark the, uh, the limit of the, uh, of the circuit. And there was a great sense of camaraderie in those days because, as I say, it was so dangerous. And I can't, I don't want to start quoting... Uh, the statistics, but um, you know there were often two or three top drivers a year killed uh, in many many of the years throughout the uh, the fifties. So it really was dangerous, and I think it engendered a um, a sense of camaraderie. I think rather like it would have been uh, for the Spitfire pilots, for example, during the Second World War, they would be sort of in the in the in the in the um, in the canteens or having coffee or something one minute. 
then the alarm would go and they'd rush to their cars, rush to their planes, I should say. And, um, you know, whether they were all going to be back again having a cup of tea uh, an hour later would be, you know, very much in the uh, in the lap of the gods. It seemed so like... So it was, um, you know, it, it was there was a tremendous sense of camaraderie and a sense of... Uh, well, yes, we raced you know, very, very hard against each other, but it was a, a sense of uh, looking after each other at the same time. And you never have some of the, the sort of things that go on these days because they can do it and get away with it. Uh, as I say, in those, in those days also, apart from the circuits, the cars were not designed to withstand uh, accidents uh, as they are now. I mean, uh, I think um, uh, somebody uh, whose name I forget, I think the Australian gentleman, um, he sort of had a big spin somewhere, uh, oh, head over heels thing, and uh, um, and uh, it got you know. Next time you see him on television, he's walking back to have a shower, uh, and uh, so the, <laughs> you know, the protection, day, yeah. uh, the strength of the cars mm. was enormous. Mm. It sounded like you needed incredible bravery. Did you consider yourself a brave person? Did you think you were doing something very different to your contemporaries? No, not at all. I did it because I thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, and the thing is that um, I never raced with, um, I'm not sure I can do this, but I'll, uh, I'll make myself do it. I never forced myself to drive beyond the limits of my capability. I drived up to the limits of my capability and no more. And, you know, a certain driver who still remained nameless, I know, uh, was um, uh, recorded in one book that he, uh, there was a, a corner at, um, at one circuit, I think it might have to be Syracuse, that uh, he didn't think he could take it flat, but um, he decided he could, and uh, uh, so he could take it flat. He looked down at the instrument panel when, uh, so that he could keep it flat and wouldn't be distracted by what was going on. Now, this seems to me, you know, quite incredible, and uh, that was something I would never do. And uh, the person concerned was, uh, uh, I'm amazed that he... Uh, he admits to, to doing that. He's not the sort of person to do, to do that, but that's, it's, it's been put in a book, so I presume it has got some, uh, some, uh, some truth in it. Now, you mentioned Syracuse there. Um, you won your first ever Grand Prix. Yes. Syracuse 55. It was a non-championship race, wasn't it? But Yes. Um, let's talk about that race. Mm. Um, can you just describe it? Because it was a bit of an adventure for you, wasn't it? Can you remember getting the call to do the race? Oh, yes, I can, most certainly. Uh, uh, I was um, <clears throat> practice. I was with a patient uh, in, uh, in the, um, the surgery at uh, the, the Turner Dental School at Manchester, and um, I was told that, um, oh, there's a, there's a telephone call for you, and it was, um, here we are with problems with names, um, it was the, um, uh, the Connaught gentleman, uh, the senior one of the two, uh, who was on the phone, and I uh, was given his name, and uh, uh, I couldn't believe this, and uh, so um, I, uh, um, I almost uh, uh, dropped the um, the inlay that I was trying to deal with in the uh, on behalf of the customer, on behalf of the patient, I should say, <laughs> uh, down his throat. But anyway, I recovered enough to go actually and take the call. And um, Rodney Clark it was fun. Rodney Clark. Run exactly, Rodney. Mm. Rodney. Clark, I think. Clark, for goodness yeah. sake, how could I forget that? But unfortunately... Um, <laughs> so you took the call. Doesn't it? Rodney Clark, it was on the phone, yes. And uh, and he said, oh, we're taking two cars to, um, to Syracuse and uh, 
uh, you know, and uh, I think it's uh, within about a week's time, he said, uh, would you be interested in taking the second car? Uh, so um, I said, well, look, I'm, I can't accept right now because I must have a word with my principal here at the hospital and uh, I will speak to him and then um, I'll call you back. So um, he may have been surprised he didn't get an instantaneous yes, but, uh, of course, I wanted to give him an instantaneous yes, but I didn't want to abuse the goodwill of the uh, principal who'd been uh, very helpful in letting me, you know, have a little bit more time off for, for racing that uh, I would would not uh, would was not entitled to. But I'd always, I would never let him down and I would catch up on any lectures that I missed and uh, uh, any studies that I should do when I got back, so I never abused his goodwill. But so I didn't want to abuse his goodwill by saying, yes, I'd go off to 2,000 miles to Sicily uh, to race without without his prior agreement. So um, I got it, and, of course, I accepted the uh, the fantastic invitation, and I was told that uh, uh, the uh, other driver was, um, um, dear, oh, dear, the other Connaught driver, again, uh, slipping with names, Les Leston, Les Leston. Les and uh, uh, so um, so I thought, well, I know him, so it wouldn't be too bad. I have some company, you know. Yes. So it wouldn't that's be how too it bad, Tony, but you'd never driven a Grand Prix car no, before. No, I haven't. Well, so, I never even sat in a Grand Prix car yes. before. Yeah. So ha- just describe sort of the nerves you had as you got on the plane to fly to Sicily. Well, uh, as I've said, that um, I never drove beyond the limits of my capability and um, I never sort of psyched myself up to the point, well, oh, you know, it's a bit dangerous, but I'll I'll have a go. I never went to that level. And um, as I say, that's probably the reason why I'm, I'm here uh, today able to, um, to, to uh, deal with this interview. Uh, so that um, this, uh, this was the most important um, attitude of mine. So... I wasn't, um, you know, I wasn't worried in that way. I had, you know, confidence in my driving ability. And also I was, uh, uh, I took all my books with me, my dental books. I say all my books, some dental books because I was studying for some exams. So uh, that was a good thing. And uh, on the plane there and and on the plane back, my mind was uh, distracted by getting on with my uh, dental studies. So that probably helped me to deal. But, uh, you know, I wasn't going to go there and do something I wasn't going to be... comfortable with so I wasn't you know frightened uh sort of perturbed in that respect so flying to your first Grand Prix in your mind you were still a dental surgeon first and a racing driver second or was that starting to shift now uh no I think uh yeah dental surgeon first uh, uh at that time and um and uh, of course I think the, the profession was always uh you know number one in the back of my head because I I realised even at that stage that um, wasn't able to, uh, or wasn't able to make a life out of, uh, or would be able to rely on on racing for all one's life for an, uh, a living. So, um, you know, I was very about, very much aware that I should get myself, equip myself to be able to earn a living. Um, you know, as and when I um, I gave up motor racing, so I think I always kept the dentistry as, you know, really forefront of my mind. But that was not demeaning my attitude. My respect for uh, motor racing was, was tremendous. My pleasure in motor racing was tremendous. But I think, uh, you know, the 
the need to be able to earn a living was uh, uppermost in my mind. Interesting you talk about your pleasure from motor racing. Um, Was it the the, the lure of success and the pleasure you got from winning or was it the, the, the pleasure of driving a car on the limit? The actual driving of the car on the limit. Uh, that's that's what really gave it. I didn't really like. I didn't really like the um, uh, the, the the publicity. And um, you know, I was always pretty. Uh, you know, I never sort of going forward after a race and two of the journalists and say, "Oh, well, do you know this? Do you know that?" Um, if they wanted to talk to me, I'd always be uh, courteously available to them. But um, the publicity did not appeal to me. That was not what it's all about. It was a fantastic satisfaction I got from driving a, um, a particular Grand Prix car um, on the limit and uh, yeah, hopefully faster than anybody else on that particular day. And then you you qualified for that race in Sicily at Syracuse uh, on the front row alongside the works Maseratis. Um, that's a big moment. Luigi Villaresi and... Luigi Musso lining, yes, right. lining up alongside you. Yes, indeed. Fantastic. Because these were just, up until then, have just been names. Uh, and, of course, uh, you know, highly regarded names because uh, I was still, you know, not much better than club motor racing. This was uh, 55. And, um, you know, I'd only been driving um, a little while. Well, I started racing with my mother's Healy Silverstone and then um, uh, Mr. Dennis, uh, Mr. Healy, um, H-E-A-L-E-Y, um, no, H-E-L-Y, I should say, um, uh, used to race with his son at Goodwood, and he had a Le Mans replica of Fraser Nash, and he very, very kindly invited me to drive his uh, Le Mans replica of Fraser Nash. So um, that was the only experience I had, uh, really, before I, um, I I got involved with Aston Martin. And uh, in Aston Martin, I met uh, John Rice the Pritchard, who had a two-liter um, Connaught, and uh, I did one or two races for him, and that was the only experience I had of a single-seater before going to uh, Syracuse. Yeah, Tony, it's an extraordinary story, but it started too a very important chapter in your life that Syracuse Grand Prix because you were racing in Italy, a country that went on to play a very important part in your life. You, you married an Italian lady, and of course. Your most successful season was with Ferrari in '59. Uh, yes, yes, it was. Um, it's um, yes, it should have been a, bit, a little bit more successful. I think we're about four points short of the of the world championship. But um, uh, yes, I mean it's it's funny how the uh, Italian thing, um, um, you know, sort of seemed to have taken over my life. <laughs> so, Could you speak to, to Italian my, to at my, the time? Uh, to my uh, great pleasure, yes. Could you speak Italian at the time? No, I didn't. No, I, I uh, when I met Pina, and um, I thought, well, she's rather right, rather like this lady, and um, and I used to get introduced to um, her friends and relations, and of course they they always great for a chat, you see. And I've been involved, in, like here, sit, sitting comfortably in a, a settee, and uh, two or three Italians sort of uh, having a great conversation between themselves, and for about a quarter of an hour. I would be able to maintain a sort of benign expression uh, and uh, and not look bored to tears. But after a quarter of an hour, that became very difficult. So as I realised that, uh, you know, I really got uh, got uh, a potential catch here in, in Pina, um, I thought really I ought to learn this language so that I can uh, 
participate and have the benefit all the way around. So uh, I bought a Teach Yourself Italian book, and uh, which was very good. And uh, the big advantage of Italian is that it's phonetically correct, the complete opposite of English. Um, so um, teaching yourself Italian, uh, because it's phonetically correct, would be easier than, I think, teaching yourself English, which is crazy. I mean, it's, it's phonetical uh, nonsense, English, uh, whereas Italian is phonetically correct. So I was able to to learn it from the uh, from the book, yeah. But not in time to converse with Enzo Ferrari. Uh, oh, yes, I did. Because, oh, did? Okay. Uh, oh, yes, yes, I did. Not that I did a lot of chatting with him because um, I uh, the reason I finished up with Ferrari was because um, uh, Van Sterling and I uh, won the World Manufacturers Championship of Van Wall in 1958 and Tony Vanderbilt uh, decided to retire uh, from motor racing. and uh, But he didn't announce his retirement until January. 59, uh, yes, 59. And um, by then, of course, all the uh, leading British cars uh, had, had you know, got their drivers and, uh, you know, no, no competitive British car available. And um, so um, um, <laughs> this sounds extraordinary. So about a week after I announced, uh, Vanderbilt announced his retirement, I had a, a call from uh, Tavoni, Romolo Tavoni, the, um, the team manager of Ferrari, saying... Uh, you know, would I would think about driving for Ferrari? I sort of um, wasn't playing hard to get, but I said, well, you know, so I'd like to uh, consider that. And uh, uh, so then um, I uh, I think uh, I was immediately invited to go over to Italy. Uh, and I met uh, uh, Enzo Ferrari in his in his uh, in his grand office and uh, had a, a very constructive uh, discussion with him uh, for about half an hour. That was all. And uh, sitting on one side of a of a, a formal desk, and Apina actually happened to be with me, but I didn't need her help to communicate on on the language side. And uh, so um, uh, we had this very uh, congenial um, uh, meeting, and uh, he, uh, he he told he discussed the terms and everything, and uh, he said, "Oh, by the way, I don't appoint uh, number one drivers until." They are participating in the team. We'll see who's doing what in the season that time, in, the, in, in, in a performing in the particular season. And um, so I, I wasn't asking for number one driver anyway, but uh, he just made it clear that's how he works, you know, you had to earn it. And I did finish up with number one driver, but on the basis of, uh, of results, uh, not, uh, uh, not being appointed uh, from the start. Back to those discussions with, with him, You'd said that you didn't want to race at Le Mans for him because there was obviously a crossover back then with the sports car program. How did that affect the relationship with him? Well, I was amazed, actually, when I said that to him because obviously Le Mans and Ferrari, uh, selling Ferrari private uh, cars, you know, is very, very important to him. So, um, you know, I I was astonished that he he accepted my offer, my offer, my... um, uh, well, I didn't put it in a sort of take it or leave it situation, but I said I didn't want to uh, drive at Le Mans because um, at that time it wasn't really a motor race. It was a high-speed tour, and it's a real test of the car rather than the driver. And uh, touring around at uh, for twenty, you know, on and off with a co-driver for uh, uh, twenty-four um, uh, hours, about fifteen seconds a lap slower than you're capable of. I mean, that was an absolute bore. 
And uh, <laughs> so, um, and he astonishingly, you know, accepted the um, my my, uh, my thing. I didn't want to do Le Mans. Now, funny enough, that may have cost uh, Ferrari the Ferrari the, the sports car championship in '59 because they made an absolute mess of uh, of, the, uh, of their uh, participation in uh, in uh, in um, Le Mans. Apparently, uh, uh, Jean Barra tended to be you know sort of uh, uh, sort of try to lead the team, and uh, they were all blowing their cars up. And of course, uh, if there's any circuit where you could rely on the Ferrari to be superior to the Aston Martin. It was Le Mans because uh, the Ferrari always had more power. Ferrari should have got, uh, you know, some, um, they should have, well, if not won Le Mans, they should have got some points at Le Mans. And, uh, uh, and it was because I think, because I had a sort of calming influence on the team somehow. And I wasn't at Le Mans, uh, not even as a spectator. And, uh, you know, they all went uh, oh, bananas. And uh, somehow Tavoni didn't seem able to uh, to control them. And they threw away their chance of winning the World Drivers' Championship or the um, World uh, Manufacturers' Sports Car Championship uh, at Le Mans, you know. And, of course, it all boiled down to uh, being decided at Goodwood, um, which, um, you know, uh, it's a circuit designed for Aston Martin at Goodwood. And, uh, uh, and uh, we put up a, you know, we did our very best, but, um, you know, it wasn't good enough and uh, we finished up uh, uh, second. But uh, as I say, that it's all, I've, I never said this to Ferrari, of course, <laughs> but I think I think I may have cost him uh, unintentionally uh, the sports car championship uh, and that year, yeah. What about the Formula One team that you were joining? What sort of condition... Uh, and, and what was the mood like? Because Peter Collins had been killed the year before, Mike Hawthorne had retired. Just Can you just shed some light on what the atmosphere was like? And, and you know, was it not on its knees, but how, how desperate was the situation there? Well, I don't think, uh, I don't think it was, was conscious of the, uh, of the, the deaths of, um, of um, Peter and uh, later Mike. I, I didn't, Feel it was bearing on the team really as such, and uh, um, it's uh, and Tavoni seemed to be, uh, uh, you know, seemed to be uh, as as he'd uh, as he'd always been. Although of course I didn't know him as well uh, as a, um, a Aston Martin driver, and um, so I don't think, funnily enough, I don't think it had a big uh, not on effect. Which is not to say that people hadn't been greatly moved and disturbed by. Uh, uh, by what had happened, but I don't think it was um, it was carried forward because I think the uh, feeling for driver Ferrari people, you know, really um, uh, savour it, and they they do say that uh, uh, every driver wants to drive uh, uh, for Ferrari at some time during their career, and um, uh, that uh, may be true. You'd have to do a lot of interviewing to establish that, but um, they, they probably wouldn't be only own up to it anyway. Well, was that true for you? Pardon? Was that true for you? No, because as I say, I mean, that sounds ridiculous, but the, the only way I finished up with Ferrari because Tony Vanderbilt retired, mm. which, you know, I wasn't doing it reluctantly, but you see, up till then, I, I'd been very proud of being part of the uh, bringing um, uh, the British motor racing from, you know, the doldrums almost into into finishing up, sort of leading the uh, uh, the world. And now, you know, participated in this starting with the... Uh, 
Syracuse Grand Prix and, you know, Aston Martin wins and so on. So I was very proud of the fact that I'd made a useful contribution to um, to Britain. So in some ways, um, you know, to move the opposition was, um, you know, not something I would have chosen to do. It sounds it all sounds crazy, mm. but um, that is it. But, uh, I mean, it sounds terrible, but it was the only decent seat left. <laughs> Well, and you had some great teammates at Ferrari that yes. year, didn't you? I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of Phil Hill. We, you mentioned Jean Beira, but yes. um, Dan Gurney, Cliff Allison. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, we had to say, yes, Jean Beira, I, I got on all right. I got, I, I got on all right with everybody. Um, you know, it's all Bongiorno um, and, uh, no, Bongiorno and, uh, uh, and uh, that's just f- uh, f- goodwill exchanges with uh uh, with John Barra was all that took place, and the longest conversation I had with John Barra was um, at the um, at the uh, TT uh, in '59. We were co-driving together, and uh, he start, he had the first turn, and uh, um, he managed to drive the car off the road and turn it over. And uh, I don't know how uh, that he got it back on the road with the help of all the, uh, the, the local population. And he brought it back to the uh, to the the um, the, so the pits, and uh, and it was my turn to uh, well, it wasn't my turn to take over, but I, I was I was going to have to take over. And he spent you know at least ten minutes, the longest conversation I've ever had with him, explaining, oh, there's nothing all right, you know. It looked absolutely a complete write off, you know. Well, a slight exaggeration. But uh, here was this guy trying to tell me, oh, it's all right, don't worry, you get on with it, it'll be okay. And, um, uh, of course, um, I had to retire after the first lap. But that was the longer conversation I had when he was trying to explain that the, the car was all right. Who was the quickest of your Ferrari teammates that year? The quickest? Well, Ferrari could be quite uh, quick. But, of course, he, he tended to overdo things. He, he had more, of his, uh, more spins than, I think, a, a driver of that, uh, of that level, you know, should really have. But he could be quite quick. But... Um, uh, Dan, I think, was uh, was um, uh, the, the fastest of the uh, of the remainder. I mean, he and, and uh, Phil was pretty close, you know. But um, I think Dan was next. But uh, but John was uh, yes, John John was uh, John John Barrow was was quick. But he, uh, I think, he pressed uh, you know too too near the limit and uh, got away with it most of the time. So your first Ferrari win in Formula One came at Reims. Yes. Mega hot day, stifling heat. Yes, yes. Um, can you just describe how hard that race was, and also the sense of satisfaction you got winning a Grand Prix for Ferrari? Yes. Well, I think the thing was that um, it's. I think it was the hottest day they'd had there for you know for youngs. And unfortunately, I've always been you know well able to cope with uh, with heat, and um, it was um, amazing at the end of the race to see. You know, drivers were sort of collapsed on the on the on the on the on the floor of the uh, of the pits. You know, um, recovering from uh, from uh, heat exhaustion and so on and so forth. And uh, so it gave me um, a lot of satisfaction to think that I'd you know overcome the physical uh, the physical problems of, uh, of of winning that race. And um, uh, it was uh, also um, a lovely sunny day and. Uh, it had a certain glamour about Reims that uh, you know some circuits don't have, and uh, to win at Reims 
uh, in a Ferrari uh, was, was a tremendous uh, uh, sense of satisfaction and, uh, you know, a great reward for um, uh, the, uh, the fact that I'd, uh, if you liked, uh, betrayed the British side uh, in the benefit of, uh, of Ferrari. But, you know, as I said, it was the only, <laughs> it was the only, it was the only drive that was, um, that was available to me after Tony Vanderbilt retired. Very interesting to hear you mention the fitness side and yes. the heat exhaustion. How how seriously did you take your fitness back then? I mean, did, did you train hard? I mean, of course, in modern Formula One, yes. so much of a driver's value yes. almost is on, on their fitness. How, how was yes. it for you? No, I, I used to look after myself very well and, uh, you know, play squash and tennis and uh, uh, and uh, uh, very sensible diet and, uh, you know, um, I didn't drink, uh, well, maybe half a, half a glass, a quarter of a glass of wine with the, the odd, uh, odd meal. So I looked after myself um, uh, from that point of view, but uh, no sort of uh, gym work or uh, hard work out like that. Just, no gym um, work. Pardon? No gym work. No, no, <laughs> I didn't. No, no, just, well, well you know, tennis and uh, mm. squash, you know, kept me free, free from my mm. fit, but, but none of the serious uh, training that uh, mm. goes on uh, today, no. Now, another victory I'd love to talk to you about is Avus, the about German Grand Prix. At what? Avus. Avus, yes, yes. What an extraordinary racetrack that was. Can you just describe what it was like with those Bank hairpins. Was it scary? Um, no, no. <laughs> uh, uh, as I say, I didn't scare. I didn't, uh, didn't scare myself. You know, um, it's only I think I've ever been scared. Uh, occasions when I might have been scared was that uh, something uh, somebody else has done. You know, it's, it's spun round in front of me or uh, uh, bumping into me or something or something. But I never reckoned to be scared as a result of one thing I'm doing myself. So, you know, I just. Um, would slowly build up my lap time, and um, you know, take they start taking the banking uh, at a higher and uh, steadily uh, increase speed on each lap, and uh, you know, get to the point where I said, "Well, that's it." You know, if I uh, um, I don't think that we can uh, uh, maintain road adhesion if I push um, push around this uh, this bank circuit at uh, at a higher speed. In fact, of course, it was. Um, Unfortunately, it was what killed Paul Jean Berra because there was um, he was racing the the previous day in uh, a sports car race. It was wet, and I think it was in a Porsche actually, and he 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 went off at the banking. So obviously, uh, you know, the wet did increase the uh, uh, the danger, but uh, you know, it did it did indicate that it was potentially uh, dangerous if you didn't uh, if it didn't hold it uh, in uh, great respect. Average speed of more than 150 miles an hour. Lots of slipstreaming, I'm guessing. So yes. How tactical did you have to be in that race? You had to be, you had to be uh, uh, tactical, but I, I, I tried to... Uh, the simplest answer was to always be in the lead. <laughs> and uh, well, I think it's more concerning is, was to uh, try and uh, discourage the people from using your slipstream, you know, to uh, catch up behind you. And um, How would you uh, do that? Was well... It um, it's very, very difficult, really. And, uh, I mean, one didn't weave around or whatever. I mean, uh, the thing was to um, to try and keep, uh, you know, the 20 or 30 feet ahead 
so they can't quite get into your slipstream. So the answer was for you to drive quick enough to, to, to keep them far enough back not to get mm. into your slipstream. Mm. But I didn't do any fanatic, uh, fanatical thing like weaving or something like that. Uh, but uh, yeah, I was very conscious of the fact. And, uh, you know, the Coopers, uh, you know, could really be... Uh, uh, were were, were um, challenged even on that sort of sort of circuit uh, because of the, uh, the the benefit of uh, slipstream which was available to them. Now, of course, the rear engine Cooper. You yes. were in a front engine Ferrari Dino. Yes. Were you aware during that season of the changing of the tide that that's where the en- the engine needed to be behind you, not in front of you? Yes. Oh yes, indeed. I mean, uh, it uh, it was it was the it was the changeover. Uh, situation uh, between uh, front engines and uh, a rear engine, and um, I couldn't. I drove um, uh, a rear engine uh, Cooper in '57 for Ron Walker, and I couldn't believe how easy it was. And quite honestly, the rear end introduction of rear engines was the start of the reduction of the importance of the driver. You know, it reduced the capacity for the driver to show his superiority. Because it was doing so much for you uh, that you didn't, you have to do it yourself, and um, it's um, uh, and you see, I mean, today is, I mean, they, they talk about the fastest lap by a tenth of a second. I mean, you know, today it's it's the, the designers who should really be on the podium with the, you know, all right, maybe with the driver, but you know, they should be on the podium. And I mean, you you know, can't make a difference, but how a tenth of a, a second? How can you? Uh, demonstrate, you know, that you're faster than somebody by a tenth of a second. It's ludicrous. Mm. So that um, it was, um, uh, it was the that's the way things were at uh, at that time. But what was the difference between front and rear? What the balance was better? Yes. Oh, the balance was better. Um, they braked. Uh, the braking was better. They were much lighter, and they were carrying much less fuel. You see, and of course, it played into the hands of. Uh, Cooper and Lotus, when they uh, reduced the the length of the races from 400, uh, 500 kilometres, I think, to 300 kilometres, that played into the hands of Cooper and uh, Lotus because they could get away with uh, with much less fuel, a much smaller a smaller petrol tank. You could shrink the, the size of the car, but they were so beautifully balanced, and um, the road handling was so good, and the braking was so good. You know, they were very controllable in in, in, in a drift. So. so it was so much easier to to drive a rear engine car than uh, a, a front engine car, and uh, I, I shan't name names, but uh, there are one or two drivers who never did anything uh, in front engine cars who, uh, you know, uh, managed quite well in in um, uh, in, in the rear engine cars, mm. and uh, so uh, it, you know, and of course this is a progression that's gone on. You see the car. The, the the design of the cars and the skills of the designers it's, it's increased sort of year by year, year by year by year. And in my opinion, you know, this has each almost each year reduced the scope of the driver to demonstrate his superiority. You see, the more difficult a thing is to do, the fewer people in the world can do it. And I think that's never. Mm truer than uh, about uh, motor racing and, uh, and and a motor car. But do you think the cream always rises? It's just perhaps the difference between the great and the good now is one-tenth, whereas in your day it was maybe a second. Uh, well, I think, yes, it could could be that. But, I mean, I don't know how you can say they're better than, uh, 
attempts uh, these days, you know. Mm. But I'm saying is you can't, you can't, you know, you can't go looking for a tenth of a second, you know, in order to say I'm a, I'm a better driver. I mean, you know, I think it has to be consistent qualifying. I mean, uh, uh, consistent qualifying and, and the performance in the race. But you see, it's very difficult to compare performances these days because of all this contraption of the, the different tyres, you know. I mean, they're never, uh, they're so rarely on this exactly the same uh, basis, you know. Somebody's doing, oh, yes, he's doing better. Ah, oh, but he's just, he's only just been, just been in for new tyres. And no, no, he's gone on to medium speed tyres. So, oh, yes, it's first to the end. So it's very difficult to compare performance these days. Mm-hmm. And uh, needless to say, if you happen to be behind the wheel of a Mercedes, you have a bit of an advantage over the competition. Mm. But I'm not saying that, um, that uh, Hamilton isn't other than a very good driver. Yes, he is. But uh, you'd have to see the other drivers in a, in a Mercedes to... Uh, to really measure that, and um, uh, you know, but I'm not diminishing it. He's done very well, and uh, but uh, just taking up the point, I'm, I'm uh, uh, returning to my point that I think that the designers have reduced the area for in which a driver can, superior, can yeah. show his superiority over the competition. In '59, the rear-engined car driven by Jack Brabham, won the title. And it seems it all came undone for you at that final race at Sebring when you were hit by Wolfgang von Trips. How um, much damage was there to your car? Uh, well, no, you're, Am I? You're, you've led me into explaining this. I, look, um, it, was, it wasn't... <laughs> that was just a small point of the situation. Uh, I'll give you the whole story. The thing is... Um, Every driver says, you know, oh, I had a less of my fair share of, 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 of luck that year. But let's go through what actually happened. Uh, Jean Bear and I um, were um, uh, first and second at the Aintree 200 race uh, in 59. And um, uh, so, uh, you know, so I was already able to demonstrate that I was, you know, be very competitive uh, in a Ferrari. And that was my first drive in a Ferrari. Uh, and uh, and I hadn't had a chance to adjust it and uh, the handling was not to my liking. Uh, but anyway, it was still, still good enough to be uh, very competitive. And, um, and what happens when the British Grand Prix, British Grand Prix is an the Ferrari are on strike. So I didn't have a Ferrari for a car. I was given a... Tony Vanderbilt, being a kind guy that he had, produced a van wall, but it was, you know, it, you know, it was the, if you're not in a racing team, if you're not a racing form, you don't produce a good car. And it, I forget what it had. Um, anyway, it was completely and utterly un- uncompetitive. Then, uh, in then they cancelled the uh, Belgian Grand Prix. I had won on the Belgian circuit. Uh, twice in sports cars in in '57, um, one of which was actually called a Belgian Grand Prix, although it's a sports car race. Two sports cars in '57, and in '58, um, I won the the uh, Belgian Grand Prix there. Yes, okay. Then we come to to um, to uh, the Italian Grand Prix, and um, uh, I was a tenth of a second slower than Sterling on the front row of the grid. Uh, you know, we were first and second uh, fastest. And at the end of my last last lap in practice, um, I made the mistake of, of uttering words that um, I still regret, which is, oh, um, 
I smelt a little bit of, uh, you know, a little bit more fur for odor than usual, you know, um, and um, just, you know, just tipping mechanics off just to make sure, you know, check everything up. And, uh, of course, what it was, I mean, I've been t- pulling everything out of the hat to uh, try and make the fastest lap, and, uh, you know, the, uh, I'd be using the brakes more than usual. And, of course, what do they do in practice? They replace the clutch. And then the, um, uh, before the race, they replaced the clutch on my Ferrari. And what happens is within the first 100 metres, my clutch burns out. I've never, ever had a, a problem with a clutch on the start line in the whole of my motor racing career. So I lost, you know, and in fact, Phil Hill um, finished second to Sterling in that Grand Prix. Now, you know, OK. You know, he'd been second, so there was a reasonable chance to feel there were, you know, more points there. Then we came what, to Chris, why then, did we, they then we came to the uh, to the um, uh, the US Grand Prix, which you would first mention. So you weren't wanted yeah. to make a point, I think. <laughs> no, I was going. Why did they replace the clutch at Monza when you were smelling brakes? Uh, no, I said I smelled smell for odor, which is not. I didn't say clutch at all. I mean, it was if they'd have a common sense, must have realised it was probably probably because oh, okay. I'd uh, I'd been you know pulling everything out of the hat yep. to try and beat Sterling for yep. for pole position, hmm. and instead of which you know they they must have thought there was something wrong with the clutch. So you know it's just after lunacy, and in fact the the head, the one of the retired um, the chap who was a head um, in charge of uh, mechanics at uh, at. Um, uh, at uh, Ferrari, uh, did criticise seriously the uh, mistake, uh, the, the decision they took there. But, of course, I just said it smelt for Odo, you know, and uh, all I meant was just, you know, just check check around the, the brakes. I didn't say brakes. They should have the common sense to that. I never mentioned the clutch was slipping. Of course, it wasn't slipping, you know. So, um, so anyway, so apart from that dramas, uh, those dramas we've had already, we then come to the uh, uh, the um, U.S. Grand Prix at uh, uh, at Sebring, and um, I was um, I made third fastest time, which wasn't bad on an aerodrome circuit because it was barrels and it was a Cooper circuit. No way was that a Cooper. Uh, it was a uh, yes, it was a Cooper circuit. No way it was a Ferrari circuit, and um, I was third fastest uh, in practice. Uh, Sterling and Jack and me. And uh, so I should have been on the front row of the grid, uh, on the on the inside. And blow me if uh, old um, Harry, um, how can I forget his name, the American, uh, had uh, allegedly done a faster lap than me in practice uh, because he missed out one of the corners because they would have these stupid corner these uh, cones on the corner, and he'd been claimed uh, a faster uh, practice lap than mine, which he hadn't done. And there was a big row on, on the... I was then pushed in the right position on the front row of the grid. And there was a, a, a row on the, um, on the starting line uh, about, uh, about the fact I should be pushed onto the uh, second row. And he got away with it. He got away with it because the timekeeper came along and, of course, they had got the wrong time round. But the point is, how the, how the wrong time got on the time sheet? It got on the time sheet because uh, um, Harry, for goodness sake. Harry Schnell? Harry Schell, yes. Harry Schell had, uh, had missed out a corner, you know, and they accepted it because the timekeeper came, here it is, oh. it's down here. Yeah, of course it's down there because the chap, <laughs> the chap, 
he got round in that time, but only because he'd missed How out a corner. Frustrating. Right, now, the so. thing is, so then I was pushed off the front row mm. onto the second row. That's no, but not the end of the world. But the point is that put me in front of, uh, of um, Von Tripps on the third row. So you should have been nowhere near him. Absolutely, on the third row. And, uh, of course, Von Tripps, um, uh, he was des- desperate trying to get a regular drive in the Formula One team for Ferrari. And, of course, what's the best way to do it? Is, is to is to is, is to follow and and stay on the tail of the of the number one driver, which was Brooks. So what he does, he does exactly that, and um, causes me to um, uh, you know shunts me off the road on a thing, and then I had the most traumatic uh, experience in my whole motor racing career, really, because I had half of that to decide whether I was going to come into the circuit into the um, into the pits to have it checked out, which would throw away my chance of, uh, because we're all, with the three, any, any one of the three of us could have won it at that stage. So I knew that would be giving away my, uh, my chance of winning the world championship. And I am very proud of the fact that I took the decision to come in to the, um, uh, the pits, because of course, otherwise you have a situation where if only, if only he'd done this. The reason I came in was because I, after my accident at Mont and my accident in the BRM at Silverstone, my accident at Mont in Aston Martin and Silverstone with the BRM, I resolved that I never, ever try and drive a car, you know, to the limits of his ability um, where there's anything, you know, mechanically wrong with it. And I took half this half lap to decide and to, to, frank, to have the strength of will to come in and give up the chance of the winning the world championship as a result of my experience in those two um, two accidents. So I was very proud of the decision that I made it. And, uh, of course, um, uh, uh, you know, um, it's uh, Sterling retired and Jack ran out of petrol, as he did do from time to time, trying to get the weight of the car down to the, to, to the, uh, to the, to the minimum. So the, the two competitors were out of the way, and the chap who finished the, won the race was uh, Bruce, Bruce McLaren, McLaren yeah. and I did a faster lap, better lap in practice than Bruce McLaren, and I think I was capable of driving Bruce McLaren. So, you know, you were rather <laughs> oversimplifying uh, the situation was, when and, you mentioned uh, no, thank you Sebring. So, I, thank you for explaining uh, it. Uh, thank mean, you for the opportunity to explain the, uh, what, the, the so truth. T- t- Tony, tell me how much damage was done to the car when you had ah, that no, yes lap. exactly well indeed it, it, it transpired that it was not the you know the end of the line but i didn't know that mm. i didn't know that because i mean uh, uh, you know you can't um uh you see the most simple um uh, uh, incident can can uh, you know can be uh, can can be serious you see i mean you can you can have something you know out, out of line or a uh, uh, fractured and so on. There's no way. I mean, I had half a lap to to make this decision, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as to whether it's a team. And uh, I'm saying, look, you said after your two accidents, uh, you would never ever, you know, risk racing a car that was, you know, substandard. And I, that made me get in. And uh, you know, if I was playing, having it all over again, I'd, I'd make the same decision. That's what I was going to ask. Would you make the same as second instead of first? Mm. But uh, as I say, I'm, I'm at least I'm, uh, I survived uh, ten very dangerous years in motor racing. Mm. 
how frustrating is it for you to have not won the world championship? Clearly good enough. Clearly, in a way, you should have won it in 59. There's a very strong argument for that. Did it? Does it still rile you to this day that it never happened? No, not really. It'd be, it's a lovely label to have. Um, but um, again, like I said, you've got to be careful about naming names. But uh, uh, the number of championships won by certain people now has demeaned the value of the world championship, in my view. Um, yeah, I, I won't. I, 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 but I must resist not naming names. But it's in the days of, 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 of Moss and Fangio, you know, you win a race, you really, really met it, really meant it, you know. But, you know, as I say, I give you several examples where, uh, you know, you can't really say that they earned the championship. And, you know, when you, get, when you, when you talk about a string of, of, of world championships, you know, uh, you know it's, <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I think the world championships demeaned. So I'm not, so I'm not, of course I would like to have had the world championship as a, as a uh, as a a, um, a label, uh, but I, I suppose I get some satisfaction on the fact I don't think it has. It means what it was, but of course you know Fangio's did, uh, and uh, you know what was earned at that time. You really, really had to earn it, and of course the cars, as I've already said, uh, were so much more difficult, uh, so much more challenging to drive. You know, it really meant something. Mm. So the answer is no. Yes, I'd love the label, but I, it doesn't it upset me. I, I won. Um, you know, six six world championship, so five world championship Grand Prix and a six non world championship Grand Prix. And I think um, there was only uh, Ascari, uh, uh, Fangio, and uh, um, Amos who won more Grand Prix in the fifties than I did. So, um, and uh, I won. I think fifty percent of the races I won in a Grand Prix car. Then I finished. I won fifty percent of the races. I'd have to double check. It's a check great that, stat. Sure. It's a great stat. So stamp. you know. So uh, mm. my results. If you looked at the results thing, uh, you know, I felt, mm. yeah, not bad, not bad. Ten years in motor racing. When were you at your peak? Um, well, I I think um, uh, you know was was the getting better. I think that each year is only by uh, because of experience. So. I think uh, probably with um, uh, with Ferrari in '59, uh, simply because, uh, of course, because because um, I could have stayed with Ferrari in, in in '60, but they weren't working on the car. And Tony Vanderbilt offered me said he was he offered me a van wall, a rear engine van wall. Now knowing how uh, how Tony Vanderbilt could build a racing team and you know how reliable they could be. Uh, and a front uh, a rear engine van wall. Wow, you know, obviously, uh, <clears throat> bearing in mind, I wanted to reduce my racing because I started a, a bought a, a small petrol filling station to build a retail motor business, and um, so it would be ideal, you know, just competing in Grand Prix with a van wall. And unfortunately, uh, he was not well, and uh, he lost, I think, his you know his drive and commitment. Uh, to um, to thing, and you know it never really materialised. It did, uh, it never developed. You see, I mean, I did drive it it once, and uh, you know, with development, it could have been uh, fine. But of course, without commitment and development, you uh, you're not going to get anywhere. So, uh, <coughs> excuse me. As a result of that, there was no other 
what I should have done is retired from motor racing. I, I thought I should uh, uh, race because I said I was going to race and the only team that was available that uh, might have a chance was the Yeoman Credit, which I drove in in 60. And uh, I drove them, but that was a, a 59 Cooper driving in 1960 with a non-factory uh, uh, engine and it was totally, utterly uncompetitive. And in fact, I think I'm right in saying the team had no fewer than nine gearbox failures in the in the year. So it was a complete, uh, complete disaster. And I should have retired. See, when Tony Vanderwell said no, I should have retired. But you know, I'd, I got this, com- you know, commitment I made. I was going to race this year, mm. and you know that was a big mistake of mine. Mm. And uh, I made the second mistake the uh, year after because uh, I drove for BRM and the car, I saw Tony, um, Raymond Mays invited me to speak to him uh, about driving for them in, uh, in 60, uh, 61 and uh, I went on, I saw the car and it looked absolutely right. It looks absolutely right. How can you say that about a car? I don't know, but I just had the feeling this was the car, you know, that really could make it. It was going to be ready for uh, Monaco, in 61, which of course would be plenty enough to have a decent uh, decent season. And uh, in actual fact, I never drove it that year at all. And the car that won the World Championship in 62 by Graham Hill, driven by Graham Hill, was the car that I saw and said, this is it, this is it. Which led me to sign up with BRM. But, uh, you know, so two mistakes and I... I should have, uh, I think my biggest regret about motor racing is I didn't retire at the end of uh, 59. Hmm. Can we talk a little bit about um, 58? Yes. It's like your, your second yes. most exciting. You finished third in the world championship. Yeah. And you won the German Grand Prix. Yes. But that year it was at the Nordschleifen. Yes. Was that your greatest race? Because you passed both of Absolutely. the Absolutely, Yes. Yes, I think it was. Yes, you well well chosen, well chosen. Yes, I was very very pleased with that. I mean, 170, 75 corners, up and down the hills of the um, of the uh, Ardennes. Uh, the, uh, the it's just the Ardennes, isn't it? No, it's, it's the Eiffel. Eiffel Tower. We're not yeah. talking about Ardennes. Well, no, Spa was I'm another tra- great track. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Ardennes, yes, I'm yeah. sorry. Anyway, it's it's a, a great 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 circuit and. Uh, of course, obviously, those those were the two best drivers there. And funnily enough, I my I caught them at the same rate as Fangio did the previous year. And of course, Fangio, you know, won the race. So, um, but that's only because I I did some analysis. I could see what happened. But uh, you're absolutely right. No, I think that was my best uh, my best race. I'm very very pleased with that. And do you think it was? that performance that got you the ride with Ferrari in 59? Oh, well, I think I'd... Because I'd, um, you very much came to the attention of yes, the oh, Ferrari that's right. Yes. Oh, I think it must have been a major uh, major factor because they know what uh, doing well at the Nürburgring uh, means. So um, I think it would have been a great factor. But um, I had, I think, 58, uh, you know, made myself uh, a, a pretty, um, you know... Uh, uh, a, a good a good reputation and uh, uh, and uh, as I say it was less than a week after Tony Vandal announced the re- retirement of Amwell that I had this lovely lovely message from uh, Ferrari you know come over and see me 
So, uh, yes, I think you're absolutely right, yes. And was what was the trigger point for Van Wall pulling out? Was it the death of Stuart Lewis Evans in Casablanca? Yes, I think uh, the death of Stuart Lewis Evans, I think, had a very big effect on Van der Velde because it was in his car. You see, his car were always beautifully prepared. And, you know, the fact he, it happened in his car, you know, is... is uh, uh, it's nothing to do with it, but he felt responsibility because he he uh, killed himself in in one of his cars. So that did have a big a uh, big influence on him. Uh, I think in uh, deciding to retire, and also he was not stupid. He could see that uh, uh, you know there would need to be um, uh, a, a transform a transformation to rear engine cars, but producing a one off car for uh, Brooks, you know, is different to producing a team. So. Um, so I think it, he realised the transformation between uh, front and rear, rear, rear engine cars was taking place. But I'm I'm sure that um, uh, Stewart's um, death was a was a big negative for him. But but the sad thing is, you know, I mean, I, obviously, I don't uh, know. I wasn't there. Uh, you know, I didn't see what actually happened. But I think, unfortunately, he didn't roll in the grass um, after he got out because his overalls were burning. I don't know, unless you were there and saw it, but it does seem that Stuart should have, you know, should have taken more efforts to uh, to, to soon himself. And uh, uh, and uh, I, I said that he didn't he didn't do that, which uh, uh, may have made the difference. I don't know, but um, he died, yeah, died six days later, didn't he? Of course, one of um, Stuart's advisor at the time was one. Bernie Ecclestone. Did you ever come into contact with Bernie? Oh, Bernie. I've been in touch with Bernie now. But at the time? Uh, at the time. Um, well, yes. Um, well, he used to, um, you know, he was a smart cookie, as we, as we all know. And uh, he, first of all, uh, you know, tried, tried motor racing as a, as a driver. Uh, and then he sort of uh, uh, tries it as, um, as a manager. Uh, and then he tries it as a team owner. But in between times, he used to, you know, he was soaking up all the information he could and he used to be finished up in the Van Wall pits every, I think virtually every race, and he would be in the back corner of the of the Van Wall pits. And um, he um, and Tony Van Der Waal would keep saying, who's that chap at the back of the corner? Who's that chap at the back of the thing? And Peter had to tell him every time, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's this chap, um, uh, Ecclestone, and... Um, and he really, uh, so he was uh, no no fool. Uh, uh, I got a lot of respect for, for him. Uh, and, uh, you know, he soaked up all this information and, you know, where, where better to be than in the Van Wall pits to see what we've gone down. And, um, and then, of course, uh, he then gets his own team and then eventually, and then says, well, I'm finding out all the thing I'm listening. You know, I've done all this, steps, all that thing. I'm going to run it. I'm going to run it. Blow me if he doesn't finish up running it. I mean, you've got to, you've got to admire his uh, his achievements. It really is quite a quite a remarkable achievement. Oh, and of course, Bernie used to buy and sell motorbikes, cars. Yes, oh, and that's, absolutely. And that's a trade that you went into after retirement. Did you yes. ever talk to Bernie about business? No, never talked about business. No, no. no it's only about. Um, I haven't spoken to him an awful lot, but we've always had a very good relationship. Hello, how are you? So on, so yeah. forth. Um, but no, we never got uh, we never got um, involved on the uh, 
on, on the, uh, the the dirty side of the business. <laughs> no, there's two names I wanted to ask you about. Um, you've mentioned Sterling, Sterling Moss, on separate yes. occasions. Yes. Just how good was Moss? Oh well, extremely good, extremely, extremely good, and uh, no question about it. I mean, he was the uh, second best to um, uh, to, to Fangio. Uh, in my opinion, I don't uh, don't have any doubt about that. Uh, you know, and uh, Hawthorne and uh, Collins were very good, and you know, a lot of other very very good drivers. But uh, um, Sterling just had that uh, just that little extra uh, amount of aggression, I think, and uh, uh, and his experience enables him to uh, to do very well. But I mean, uh, you know, I mean, talk about the World Championship. I mean, he was. Second, I think, for, f- for four years, was it? In the 50s, you know, and never managed to go up the year. So if I ever got fed up about winning the World Championship, I think, well, no, nor did, nor did Moss. In fact, I think I see Sterling made the comment one time, you know, it, it was um, it was almost a, um, an accolade not to have won the World Championship. <laughs> and, of course, a man who won it many times, five times, was Fangio. So yes. You think he was... The best driver you ever raced? Yes. The uh, best driver... You ever raced? I ever raced against, you mean? Yeah. Oh, yes, no Fangio. question about that. Yeah, but the thing is, he did in, in four different cars. Um, um, uh, yes, three no, three different cars. He, he won the championship five times, wasn't it? I'm losing track of time. Yeah, five times, wasn't it? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so well, he won it in four four different cars. So, I mean, that says a lot. I mean, some of these uh, people who sort of were... In a Mercedes or a, a, a um, what's it, these uh, these but, other teams, you know, it's the same car with a superior thing, you know, it doesn't it. But to to win it five times in, in three different cars, that's saying something. Great versatility, but what made what stood him apart? What made him so good? I think just uh, uh, an extra amount of natural ability. That um, I think Sterling had to try harder to produce the same sort of uh, performance as uh, Fangio at any particular level. I I can't prove this, just my um, opinion. But he, he just had that extra bit of natural ability, perhaps the extra sensitivity in his terrier, uh, <laughs> in his hands, uh, and uh, certainly, obviously, he's got everything uh, upstairs uh, working very well. Uh, but um, I think... Just that he was, God gave him just that extra, extra touch of uh, natural ability. And what was your personal relationship like with Fangio? Oh, well, fine. Yes, I we spoke. You know, we spoke to. In fact, we were invited out to uh, Argentina. I think after he retired and had a very nice uh, uh, few weeks there uh, with him. And uh, yes, I spoke to him in Italian. And. Um, Yes, no, very good, uh, very good relationship. No problem at all. Uh, yeah. Now you mentioned after you retired, and you you retired abruptly at the end of '61. It seemed you were only 29. Yes. Was it a difficult decision for you? Uh, no, not really. As I say, I should have made the decision at the end of uh, end of '59. Uh, so I mean, I think my my regret is that I hadn't made it earlier um, because. Um, and uh, as I say, these very rented cars, uh, they weren't really thrilling me because, as I say, they had taken uh, certain skills, um, a certain uh, the need for certain skills in a driver. 
it's diminished their their importance. And um, so the rear engine car, as a competitive, uh, as a, as a challenging vehicle to drive, I I did not find as challenging as in fact the front engine cars. And um, so the cars weren't weren't thrilling me. But I I think is um, as I say that. Um, I would have, uh, should have retired at the end of, uh, of uh, finished with Ferrari, and uh, that would have been it. But um, uh, I didn't. Um, the, there was no point in uh, in, in working, um, uh, continuing unless you had the chance of a very good car. But but also, I had a family, and I'd survived uh, ten years, so it was a very practical consideration that. Uh, it was, you know, it was no less dangerous, uh, well, fractionally less dangerous maybe, uh, than it had always been. And uh, uh, I got a, I got a start of a family. So, you know, I had a, a, a responsibility to uh, be able to uh, look after them. So, I, I mean, no, it just, it was only sudden. I mean, you either, you either, you know, you either, you know, you go or you don't go. Your gut reactions were right about that BRM. Yes, just wasn't ready yes. for you in '61. Absolutely, yes. Was the option there to race alongside Graham Hill in '62? I never explored. Yes, I think I, I yes, I think I was. Yes, I think Graham Amazon asked me to do so. I can't honestly mm. remember. I think so. Yes, but it I was think so. Husband and father came first. Yes, absolutely. Yes, yeah. oh, absolutely. Yes. No, it wasn't really a competition because we'd also had uh, we'd started a family, and uh, you know I had a perfectly good profession, uh, <coughs> dentistry, and I'd started up this motor motor business, which was you know uh, quite a challenge. But um, uh, in starting up, I had no business experience at all. I had a very good degree uh, in dentistry, and of course, a good degree of that standard, you know, gives you a, a tremendous qualification to be able to apply yourself to all sorts of things and a, a good degree qualification is a good qualification for, for, for life even if you don't use a specialized um, aspect of it so um, I had this means of earning a, earning a good living and um, uh, my motor business was um, was beginning to um, pick up and uh, of course uh, I had no business experience so of course what I was doing was I was really um, uh, jumping in the deep end and not knowing how to, how to swim, so I very quickly had to uh, had to learn. And, uh, and just as I got out my Italian book to learn Italian, I got out all sorts of books, you know, to try and uh, uh, find a shortcut to uh, learning how you should uh, run a motor business. And uh, fortunately, I, um, I, I um, you know, I succeeded. Good. Well, Tony, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure, absolute pleasure, to talk to you about your career and how different it was back in the 50s <laughs> thank you very much it certainly was different uh, very uh, very very different and uh, thank you for the very uh, uh, interesting uh, questions that you've addressed to me that was great wasn't it talking to tony you begin to understand what made him such a great racing driver in such a dangerous era cool and composed and not a hint of prima donna superstar for all his success it was great hearing his recollections particularly about what made fangio such a class apart and i urge you to look up a photo of that remarkable bank corner at avus which tony said wasn't scary it will send shivers down your spine 
Thanks so much, Tony. It was a true privilege to chat. Well, that's it for this episode, but we'll be back next week with another big name from the world of F1. Until then, why not subscribe to Be On The Grid if you haven't already? We're on all of your favourite podcast apps, including Apple and Spotify. And please keep your feedback coming. We love it. Remember to use the hashtag F1BeOnTheGrid and you can tweet me at TomClarksonF1. Beyond The Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audio Boom. Until next time, keep it flat out. Hello and welcome to Limitless with me, Joshua Patterson. It's the moments in my life where I've challenged my limitations. Those very moments that have defined the person I've become and will continue to be. Each week, I'll be talking to amazing people who have challenged extraordinary limits in their own way. If you'd like to hear more, you can find Limitless on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other major podcast platforms.